Good evening, everyone. We are back in the book of Ruth. <laughs> we began this study, I think, in June or July, um, and lockdown restrictions made it somewhat impossible to carry on with regular evening services. And so when we stopped, we'd only gotten through two sermons and only most of chapter one. So I thought, I'm not sure what I'm going to do coming back into this series. Um, but fortunately, this next section, the end of chapter one, verses 19 to 22, Naomi's words at the end here pretty much sum up the entire first chapter and set the scene for the book, for the th a theme, a major theme of the book that follows. All right, so we're going to read together, and I want to read together the whole of chapter one for context's sake. And then as we look at Naomi's words, particularly at the end, we're going to hit the high notes of the chapter. Quite a long reading, but bear with me, it's important. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return with your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. And from verse 19, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, to be back in this beautiful narrative, Lord. We're so thankful for your word and for the fact that we are having another opportunity today to sit under the teaching of your word and to, to hear from you through it. And so we ask again, Father, that you would bless the time that we have. May this be uh, special and may it be sweet in the life of the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. There's a very interesting parallel between the complaint of Naomi at the end of this chapter and another complaint that we see in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 15, right after the Israelites have been delivered by God's hand from the hand of Pharaoh, when they've just come out and crossed the Red Sea, the praise has just faded from their lips. They walk into the wilderness and they go three days in the wilderness and they're not able to find water. And immediately the people of God begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They find a, a spring of water, but their hope disappears as they find this water undrinkable. And so they call the, the place that that spring was Mara, which means bitterness. And they grumble and complain against Moses. And God then does a miracle and makes that water drinkable and then leads them from Mara to a place called Elam, where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, the scripture says. But still, despite the constant care and provision of God that we see throughout that wilderness time, the pattern amongst the people of God is set, complaining and grumbling. Despite God's proven track record, His people can only see in front of their eyes their circumstance, and they only have hopelessness for their situation. Now, Naomi has been through a mountain of pain. She cannot see any hope in her situation, and so she speaks at the end of chapter 1 like Israel spoke in the wilderness. She decides that her name, Naomi, which means pleasant, or pleasant one. She decides that that name doesn't fit. Call me Mara, she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And thousands of years later, despite the evidence of God's faithfulness having mounted before our eyes, culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ that should forever have established in our hearts the trustworthiness of our Father, Still, we often default to Naomi's attitude. 
call me Mara, call me bitter. Naomi says something at the end of Ruth that really sets a challenging tone for the rest of this book. She says something that the rest of this book is written to answer. In verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I went full, but God brought me back empty. That's a challenge that the rest of the book of Ruth is going to take up. In fact, emptiness and fullness, you might say, is the great theme of this book. And I want to spend a little bit of time together tonight as we consider Naomi's assessment of things. What are we to make of her assessment? She becomes an important object lesson for us because there are many times, there are days, and sometimes those days turn into weeks and into months, where we say ourselves, God has brought me here empty. Really simply tonight, I have three headings. There is a reality that we must face in this passage, and then there is a truth, number two, and a promise that we can embrace as well. Number one, a reality to face. We should face and not diminish the reality of Naomi's emptiness. In one sense, she is right. Her loss has been great. She's lost her husband and both of her sons. Remember, as difficult as Naomi's situation would be for a woman in our day, it was even more difficult in hers. The reader is meant to read this first chapter and feel the weight of this calamity. She is left destitute by the loss of her husband and her sons, and the family name is now in danger of being written off of the pages of history. The book of Ruth, with, which begins with this flurry of names, this family, Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, Kilion. By the end of verse 5, all of those names are gone. And even Naomi is just called the woman in verse 5. Bereft she is. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says, Three names on gravestones, and her own name doesn't fit. Pleasure has been replaced by bitterness and fullness by emptiness. And even coming back to her own people in the land of Judah, everything is stacked against her. Even as she comes to Bethlehem, which we saw means the house of bread, her outlook betrays a complete lack of hope. And in her hopelessness, she so pleads with her daughters, no, return, return to Moab. They have started the journey with her back to Israel. And there at the crossroads between Moab and Israel, she says to them, turn back. Verse 9, she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. There is no hope for you in Israel. I can't bear any sons for you, and no one is going to marry a Moabite. Remember Ian Duguid's apt summary. There was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Orpah sees the hopelessness and understands and relents. She makes the, the sensible decision from a human perspective. She goes back to Moab, hopefully to find security in Mr. Right. 
and off of the pages of Scripture, Orpah walks. Orpah took the road away from emptiness, but she took the road away from Yahweh at the same time. So Naomi and Ruth journey on together to the promised land, and Naomi arrives, no longer Naomi, but Mara. And to her people, she pours out her complaint for the very real pain that she's feeling, the hopelessness that she has. She gives voice to her emptiness. It is an emptiness and a hopelessness that the book of Ruth is going to answer. And it will give the answer to all of us in all those times where we feel an emptiness of our own. A questioning in those moments of profound loss. Maybe you feel right now that your life to a certain extent is mirrored in Naomi's story. There is a definite reality that we have to face at some point or another. And that is this, that in a fallen world, the progression of our lives from one perspective is this, a progression towards emptiness. Everything that we have, everything that is ours from an earthly perspective is subject to loss. On Wednesday afternoon, I was, I was sitting with Dave as we faced together the, this reality that the Lord was about to take Gail away to be with him. It's a reality that Dave has rejoiced in. He said to me when I, I phoned him the first time after she, she passed away, he said, I know she's with the Lord. I know she's with the Lord. But there is still a reality that he is left behind now to face a kind of emptiness. You cannot be married to somebody faithfully for 47 years and not feel emptiness at their passing. My mom has felt that same emptiness, and I, I've felt it a little bit too as well. We're heading off to Joburg this week for a time with my family. It will be a sweet time of rest with them, but it will be a little bit emptier than it always has been before. I'll never return again to Joburg without that little bit of emptiness. My parents' home will always be emptier. This emptiness shades even the, the sweet things of life. From the moment my children were born, we began to experience this loss. A face that you're never going to see again. A year later, another face that you're never going to see again. Everything that is bound to this life is subject to loss. That is the reality that we live with. But that is not the whole picture. So number two... There is a truth in Naomi's words to embrace. Her hopelessness is misinformed. When she speaks, at least she speaks with truth. She's not seeing things clearly. And she's certainly not seeing things completely. But she does at least see God in her situation. She sees God in her situation. Her complaint is against Him. I found a, an album this year in one of my maybe lower points that really resonated with me. It was written by, I don't know if you know Shane Barnard. He, he writes a lot of famous songs that we, some of them we sing as well. Uh, his wife wrote this album and she wrote it after she had gone through a series of loss in her life and even depression. 
Ray had found this album before I did, but she didn't share it with me because she didn't know if it would be good for me. But one of the, the songs has this line, and it, it did. It resonated in my heart for a time. Who else am I supposed to be angry at? You're the one who calls the shots. And we, we feel that at times. It was actually a pretty hopeful album. Um, and she wasn't saying it's okay to be angry with God, but she sings the words that sometimes fill our hearts. Naomi is complaining, but she speaks the truth in verse 21 when she says, The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There is truth in what she says. In the book of Ruth, and Scripture would affirm that truth, that famine and loss are in the hands of God. But we can't stop with Naomi's statement. The truth that famine and loss are in God's hands is not a truth to run and hide from. It's not even just a truth to acknowledge. It is a truth to embrace. For in that truth is all of Naomi's hope. If God's hand has not done it, if he was not able, I think John Piper said something like this, if he is not able at the front end of her pain to prevent it in 10,000 different ways, then what hope is there for Naomi at the back end of that pain that God could bring any good from it? If God is not in control and working out his purposes through calamity, then what is the ground for any hope, for any comfort or peace or that anything glorious can really come out of it. Naomi is right. God has brought calamity upon me, but Naomi, open your eyes. That is the very reason you have hope. She has stated truth, but only seen half of it. If God, God is in control, she'd forgotten what the Israelites had forgotten in the wilderness, what we so quickly and easily forget, that God is not just in control, he's committed to our good as well. John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Our lives, in one sense, progress towards emptiness, towards loss, but God's purpose is that you would never stop there. Emptiness is not the final destination that's what the book of Ruth is about. That's what the author wants to make clear. Naomi's progression is not from fullness to emptiness, but from emptiness to fullness. This is number three, the promise to embrace. The seeds of this better promised progression from emptiness to fullness are sown in chapter one. They are sown even here. For starters, Naomi comes to Bethlehem and even in her emptiness, she's not so empty if she just had eyes to see. One commentator says it this way, almost playfully, but certainly with delicious irony. The storyteller brings down the curtain on Act 1 with Naomi complaining about her emptiness, while Ruth, the very person who will bring an end to Naomi's emptiness, stands there apparently unnoticed. She's not really alone. She still has Ruth. And this is not just about Naomi. The story is also about Ruth. When Naomi tried to convince Ruth to return to Moab, Ruth would not be convinced. 
Ruth's words to Naomi were words of allegiance, but they were not only allegiance to Naomi, they were words of allegiance to Naomi's God as well. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord, she takes the covenant, covenant name Yahweh upon her lips. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is a story of Ruth's conversion. While Orpah chose everything minus Yahweh in the land of Moab, Ruth chose Yahweh plus nothing in the land of Bethlehem. And so Ruth chapter 1 is a narrative that is not just about Naomi's calamity, but also about Ruth's conversion. So Sinclair Ferguson says, Ruth's conversion is part of the explanation for Naomi's pain. Ruth's conversion is part of the explanation for her pain. We forget. We forget in moments of emptiness that God's purposes are, are good, and we forget that they're not just for our good but that sometimes we have the, the sometimes painful but altogether awesome privilege of being used by God for the good of others. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, he says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Then he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. This is Paul talking about him pouring out his life for the sake of the Corinthians. And Paul had experienced the other end of it, holding the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death. He saw the radiance of Stephen's face. He saw the man undeterred in death. And I believe it was something that shook Paul down. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I believe Paul saw something there in the death of Stephen. Death at work in Stephen, but life in Paul. God's hand over your life, even for calamity, lies Partly for your good, for Christ-like maturity, for the, the work that God is doing in you, making you more like Christ. But it doesn't lie there exclusively. A large part of it may lie in someone else's life. The emptiness of Naomi spelled fullness for Ruth. And incredibly, it is through the emptiness of Naomi that God brings the fullness of the world. That is the point of the book of Ruth. And the author gives us a hint of this. He starts in verse 22, right at the end of the chapter, that a new progression is beginning. Not fullness to emptiness, but emptiness to fullness. In verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Beginning of the harvest, Naomi had left under famine. It was a famine that remained in her heart. 
but the author wants you to see something new is beginning. In chapter 2, when Ruth is gleaning in the field, she goes back to Naomi and she, she pulls out of her apron a large amount of her gleanings and gives it to Naomi. And it's the beginning of the end of emptiness. In chapter 3, in the, the night scene with Boaz, Boaz says to Ruth, you mustn't go back to your mother-in-law empty. The same word that Naomi uses. And so Ruth goes back with a gift. And then in chapter 4, finally, after marrying Boaz, Ruth brings out of her apron, the language says, not, uh, not out of her apron, out of her womb, not wheat, but a child. A child in whom is bound up all the hope of Israel, the hope of the world. And Naomi's arms, the picture at the end is, her arms are filled. Naomi's emptiness turns to fullness, but not only for her, for the world. For through this lad, who would come? None other than the King David. And ultimately, we come to the New Testament, to the genealogy of Christ. And who do we see in that line? Ruth's name written there. And the language of fullness abounds in concerning this child. Colossians 2, 9-10, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of, all and rule, head of all rule and authority. John 1, 14, 16, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There is in Christ a full answering, a fullness that is the answering to our emptiness through the curse. And in Christ, as we stand in Him, the progression of our lives may go through loss and may lead through emptiness, but the progression is always towards fullness, fullness in Him, fullness of God's presence forevermore, fullness of salvation and restoration and everything the locust eats will be restored. Everything empty will be made full. This is the gospel story at the heart of Ruth. And the fullness to come, the longing of all our weary hearts is only made brighter by the emptiness. Every moment of emptiness will be redeemed by the fullness of Christ. And every moment will be used to make that fullness our treasure. When I think of my mom's loss, the promise that I cling to is that God has brought calamity to do this, to make her more for Him. He empties in order to fill up, to work His plan for my dad's church. And on Wednesday, I got to read with Dave my, my favorite psalm as we sat at the precipice of his loss. There are words that I want to close with, words that wash over the emptiness that I sometimes feel in a sin-cursed world. Psalm 16, I'm going to read from verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shoal or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Oh dear God, we know that in Christ there is a fullness. There is a fullness to our eternity where forever we will experience joy and peace, happiness in your presence. But Lord, we ask that you help us to acknowledge that fullness even now. As we would leave from here just now, Lord, there will be times, there will be times where we feel the emptiness again. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts again with that fullness. We thank you for the gift of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the the gift that even in our, our suffering and even in our pain and hardship, we know that you are always doing something, that you are using our lives for your glory, for our good and for the good of those around us. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to take heart in moments of emptiness, to set our hearts on you, and may heaven be made all the sweeter by what we go through in this life as we give glory to you. Amen.